A warning to our listeners. It Was Simple contains descriptions of violence and language that is not suitable for every audience. Please be advised. One of the most sensational moments in Betty Broderick's second trial was right out of a courtroom TV drama. As Betty's attorney Jack Early was asking Betty about her kids' welfare, he posed this bombshell so matter-of-factly that it took Betty and everyone else a moment to process it. Quote, In Mr. Broderick's comments, did he ever mention that he had talked to somebody about having you killed and how much it would cost and how he could be protected? Did he ever bring that up to you? Betty started to tear up. No, she said, no, obviously not. Early had witnesses ready to testify about this, and he found them chiefly because of the power of television. The second trial was televised. The first had not been. One witness was a cab driver whose daughter had been a client of Dan's. He said he and Dan had discussed getting a hitman to kill Betty. The second was a Northern California woman who saw the trial on TV and recognized Betty. And the third was that woman's former fiancé, Charles Smith, once a cop and by then a deputy district attorney in San Mateo County. The woman and Smith told Early's team they were at Harris Casino in Lake Tahoe in 1983. Smith says he went into the bar to wait for her, and to this day, he's haunted by what happened next and what he would learn happened a few years later. At the bar, he and the man on his right started talking. Smith couldn't help but notice the man wore an impeccable and expensive suit, a shirt with French cuffs, not a hair out of place. He said he was an attorney, and he asked what I did, and I said I was going into law school. We just started just basic chit-chatting, and he asked me if I was married, and I said no. And he said, don't. And we kind of laughed. That was kind of the normal bar chatter. And at that point, he looked at me and he said, I think I'm going to drive my wife crazy. And there was no, there was no laughter. There was no joke. There was, there was nothing there. He just stared at me as he said it. And then he started talking about how he was going to do that. And he started talking about the things he was going to do to drive her crazy. And the whole point of driving her crazy was he was going to drive her crazy so that she committed suicide. And there was another man sitting at the bar, and he said, well, why don't you try a hitman? And he said, something the fact that, well, that, that sounds like a good idea. And then they started talking about a gun. And I'm sitting there thinking, this is the absolute craziest thing I have ever heard. That's when Smith says he got up and left the bar. He saw his fiancée, Teresa, Terry for short, and told her what had happened. The two began arguing. She wanted to report it to the police, or at least casino security. And remember, Smith was a cop, and he said, well, wild talk isn't a crime. Then they saw the man and his wife. I remember his wife because she had 
long blonde hair. She was wearing like an evening gown, like almost like a 1950s, if you were at a Hollywood production, if you were an actress sort of gown. I've never really seen one in real life, but there she was, jewelry. Again, not a hair out of place. It was like a glamour couple. Smith said his fiancée went up to the couple and looked the man in the eye, then came back and said, I wanted him to know that I knew. So if he did anything, I would know. And she looked at me, Carrie did, and said, you are going to regret this. You are going to regret that you did not say or do anything. And the glamorous couple melted away into the casino crowd. His then fiance's prediction has never left him. There's not a 3 a.m. that I don't remember this particular case because um, when Terry said you'll regret it the rest of your life, um, this is one of those situations where most of my life, my father was a, a U.S. Marine and I grew up in a family where you're supposed to do the right thing. And I didn't do or say anything because, frankly, I didn't want to cause a scene. You know, they were two well-dressed people, high rollers. And what was I? I was 23 years old. I was, I was kind of a nobody. And I didn't want to cause a scene. From the Los Angeles Times, I'm Pat Morrison, and this is It Was Simple, The Betty Broderick Murders. You better be watching, you better be watching in the dark. You better be watching, you better be watching on your guard. You better be, you better be, you better be watching. There is no proof the man at the bar was Dan Broderick. But after Smith was interviewed by Betty's defense team, the prosecutor and former cop was ready to testify under oath about what he'd seen. I asked him, what makes him so certain? After all, he never even got the man's name at the time. I thought about this. If I was asked if if the people that I saw at the bar were those people, I would be able to say, that beyond a reasonable doubt, they were the people I saw at the bar. Would I be able to say it 100%? No. But would I be able to say it beyond a reasonable doubt? Yes. Early thought calling Smith and his former fiancé as witnesses would make it clear that Betty had reason to be afraid of Dan. A couple of moments after Early asked Betty on the stand about Dan hiring a hitman, Judge Whelan summoned attorneys into a huddle beyond earshot of the rest of the courtroom. And then the judge told the jury, forget that question they'd heard. It would all be stricken from the record. The judge ruled that because Betty didn't know about any of these conversations, they couldn't have influenced her actions. So no testimony about hitmen or driving Betty to suicide allowed. This wasn't a self-defense case after all, and there was no evidence that anyone had ever tried to kill Betty. 
But Charles Smith still thinks about that encounter at the bar. What if he had spoken up? This has haunted me because perhaps everybody would be alive and out of prison if I had stepped up and said something at the time. As the second trial came to a close, Early sent the jury off with the thought that Betty Broderick was so far gone that she couldn't premeditate anything. These seven men and five women deliberated for four days. My understanding is, for a while, it didn't look like they were going to reach a verdict. And then there was a compromise. Jurors thought, well, maybe she would do 10 years if they convicted her of a second degree. Also, part of it was just the case. Evidence was that came in in the first trial wasn't coming in for us, and evidence that didn't come in for them was coming in the second trial. But finally, the second jury did what that earlier jury could not, and it was no prettier a process than it had been the first time. Here's the foreman of the jury, George McAllister. We spent a great deal of time on Friday discussing the issue of murder versus manslaughter, and I felt at least on that Friday before we left that everyone was agreeable to talk about that it was a murder issue and then we could talk about whether it was first degree or second degree murder. And then when we got back on that Monday, this person had decided that it was not a murder issue. She did not want to talk about it further. It was very upsetting to, to hear that because we, I thought we had accomplished a great deal. Eventually, though, the holdout juror relented. The jury returned to the courtroom and confirmed it, one by one. Yes, Your Honor, guilty of second-degree murder of Daniel and Linda Broderick. When it came to a conclusion, it brought us all to tears that we'd at least come up with a verdict. And afterwards, we, standing around the jury room holding hands with everyone having a tear in their eye, realizing that This was incredibly hard work, and that what we could do was try to bring a little bit of justice, even though we felt it wasn't the best verdict that we could come up with. We at least felt that we did the best we could do, and that it was very emotional. Dan's brother Larry, who was apoplectic about the hung jury the year before, was enraged again. Second-degree murder? Quote, what's the matter with a system that allows this woman to threaten these people dozens of times, buy a gun, take shooting lessons, blows them away in their sleep, and that's not murder one in this goddamn country? It's an outrage. After the jurors made their verdicts known and were leaving the courtroom, Betty, still at the defense table, still in the pastel plaid Escada jacket she would soon trade for prison-issued clothes, smiled gently at them like a hostess seeing her guests off at the end of one of her lovely, long-ago La Jolla dinner parties. The transformation was almost complete now. Just as eons of time can change a piece of wood into petrified stone, so were the layers of Betty's old selves, the demure Catholic girl, the struggling young bride, the adoring mother, the rich man's stylish wife, the same rich man's cast-off. Those layered identities were left behind. What remained was Betty, the murderer. All that was left in this strip tease of her soul was what a judge's sentence would decide she would be. A convict with a someday hope of becoming a free old lady? Or with what amounted to a lifelong sentence? A felon who went into prison with no likelihood of leaving it 
except the same way her ex-husband and his new bride had left their lives, in a coffin. How long would Betty Broderick stay in prison? At the sentencing hearing in February 1992, Dan and Linda's family and friends got their say. Linda's older sister, Maggie, began by setting in the judge's line of sight a framed photo of a smiling Linda. Her voice quavered when she said, I think the only pictures you have probably seen of Linda have been of her body, so I'd just like to put this up there. Then she played a voicemail message Linda left her the day before she was killed. Quote, I cleaned out my closet this morning and I came across the letter you gave me on my wedding day. I just read it and it makes me cry because it's so nice. I'll talk to you next week, I'm sure. And then her sister went on. It is dismaying to those of us who knew her well that Linda has emerged as some kind of gold-digging bimbo. She was very quick and intelligent. Maggie had a few words for the media for turning the Colquina's tragedy into, quote, prime-time entertainment. Then she turned her words on Betty, sitting a few feet to her right. Linda's family had been worried about Betty's, quote, increasingly violent conduct. But Linda loved Dan, and Dan unaccustomed as he was to a loving partner, loved her. Terry Broderick, one of Dan's brothers, brought his own photograph to court. Little Dan, on his first day of Catholic school, gazing up trustfully at a nun. Compromises had already been made in this case, Terry Broderick said bitterly. The prosecution not going for the death penalty. The jury settling for second-degree murder. If his ex-sister-in-law had been in Texas or Florida instead of California, quote, she would probably be going to the gas chamber or the electric chair. And he, too, had an angry message for the press. The media has basically dragged his name through the mud in order to sell more newspapers. One of Dan's oldest friends, attorney Brian Monahan, implored people not to believe Betty's, quote, horrible distortions. This was never a happy marriage. Betty Broderick drove that marriage into the ground for years and years and years. Then the prosecutor, Carrie Wells, made her last pitch that the court once and for all put an end to Betty Broderick by putting her away. Quote, It's time for everyone, including the press, to do what Elizabeth Broderick so richly deserves, and that is to ignore her. To her, that is a fate worse than imprisonment because she so loves and so well plays the part of the martyr. Well, Elizabeth Broderick is not a martyr. She is a murderer. These statements made it harder for Betty's defense attorney, Jack Early, to push for a less-than-maximum sentence. And so, before Judge Thomas Whelan issued Betty's sentence, Early tried one last strategy. You'll remember that one of Betty's chief grievances was her certainty that Dan used the legal system to persecute her, and her defense for murder was that this persecution had provoked her to it. Standing before Judge Whelan, Early quoted Betty, saying that Dan, quote, liked to destroy other people through his law practice, and that Dan had turned that relentlessness on her. Then Early acknowledged Betty's belief that the San Diego legal community had closed ranks behind Dan, And he just came right out and said it. He hoped Judge Whelan would resist the temptation of looking to say to himself, quote, 
Am I a hero in the legal community if I give her consecutive, meaning consecutive terms? And am I looked down upon in the legal community if I give her concurrent time? That is, serving sentences for both murders simultaneously, potentially meaning less time behind bars. Judge Whelan did not like that one bit and made it clear that he'd never met Dan Broderick, nor Linda, nor Betty, and, quote, no one in the legal community has pressured me to do anything in this case other than what I think is right. That said, he denied Early's motions for a new trial and declared that for the two separate acts of violence, for, quote, the high degree of callousness of the crimes, Elizabeth Ann Broderick would serve the longest possible sentence he could give her for second-degree murder, two back-to-back prison terms, with another two years for using a gun. Total, 32 years to life. The day in December 1991 that Betty was found guilty, Dan Broderick's brother Larry, as furious as he was that it was only second-degree murder, consoled himself with the knowledge that, quote, we'll never have to turn on the TV or pick up the newspaper and see that disgusting visage again. Not exactly. There followed not one, but two Oprah Winfrey interviews in 1992. It made good sense to me. What made sense? Taking the gun so I could make them listen to me. Betty didn't sound particularly remorseful either. I'm sorry about this whole thing, but I'm mostly sorry that that Dan Broderick chose to conduct our marriage and our family and his life the way he did. There was no reason for it, and it was brutality, and we didn't deserve that. Oprah also brought in two of Betty's children, the prosecutor Carrie Wells and Larry Broderick. That Oprah's shows didn't exactly deliver a valentine to Betty provoked her into telling writer Bella Stumbo, quote, Her whole approach was the same old shit, the woman scorned. But both episodes outdrew Oprah's interview with Elizabeth Taylor. Elizabeth Taylor! In the same year came the two Betty Broderick made-for-TV movies, both top-rated. And the books followed. In the spring of 1993, Forsaking All Others by Loretta Schwartz-Noble, and a few months later, Bella Stumbo's Until the Twelfth of Never, which won an Edgar Award for nonfiction crime writing. Why were the Broderick murders so fascinating? After all, in 1989, the same year that Betty Broderick murdered Dan and Linda, dozens of men killed their ex-wives or girlfriends, and sometimes they killed the women's new partners, too. In Washington state, a month after Dan and Linda's murders, a man gunned down his ex-wife, their two daughters, and the woman's new husband, while the latter was in the bedroom on the phone to sheriff's deputies. A few months before the Broderick killings, right up the freeway from La Jolla, a man was ordered to stand trial for slashing his ex-wife's throat. He was afraid she'd use her new $727,000 in lottery winnings to go back to court to get full custody of their kids. These stories didn't make a splash in national magazines. Oprah didn't do interviews. Court TV didn't set up camp in those courthouses. Why Betty? A few reasons. For one thing, it's usually men who kill their exes in these if-I-can't-have-you-nobody-can murders, not the other way around. Here's psychologist Lenore Walker. 
Today, there are 500 men who are being killed by the women they've abused, but 1,200 women are still being killed every year by the men. Again, Dan was never charged with any kind of abuse, although the question of whether he emotionally abused Betty came up at both of her trials. Another reason we still remember this case is that Betty, like her victims, was rich, smart, good-looking, and a facile and eager talker. Plus, gunfire and gore didn't ordinarily reach this stratum of society. After all, how often did reporters get to use the words murder and mansion and socialite in the same sentence? And third, you might even call the news media a 13th juror, giving shape and volume to the case. Court TV debuted just a few months before the second Broderick trial, and its daily segments of The People versus Elizabeth Ann Broderick were a hit. Interviewed in prison several years later by the authors of the book Cameras in the Courtroom, Television and the Pursuit of Justice, Betty unsurprisingly insisted that had TV cameras been broadcasting from the closed courtroom during her divorce trial, quote, none of this would have happened. He wouldn't be dead and I wouldn't be here. After Betty's first few years in prison, though, interest waned. The next time most people heard much of anything about Betty was at her first parole hearing in January 2010, 18 years after her sentencing. It was her first chance to earn back her liberty, and it did not go well for her. The hearing went on for five hours. It brought all four of the Broderick children together and showed how deeply they were split over giving their mother her freedom. It showed, too, a Betty Broderick whom the parole board declared to be unchanged and unrepentant. Here's what Betty said about the day of the murders. Voices in my head completely take over. I heard all the past voices. I heard all the bad things of my parents and my kids and Dan and everybody else that I'm this horrible, awful, worthless failure of a human being. And then I allowed the stress of losing my house and going to jail and not having a home to put the kids because if he throws me in jail again, I lose my house. And I was just afraid. Now the Board of Prison Terms Commissioner steps in, Robert Doyle, a former sheriff of Riverside County. Quote, Mrs. Broderick, stop right there a minute. You're worried about your husband putting you in jail again, yet you consciously take the gun that you purchased. You go to the house. You've got a key to get in. It's not like you knocked on the door or rang the doorbell, okay, and said, hello, can we chat? You didn't do that. You went in the back door. You knew the house well. You went to the bedroom, it's 5.30 in the morning, and you killed two people. Then Betty says, I went to Dan's house to ask him to just give me the kids and leave me the hell alone. This is too many years of this ongoing stuff, and I never got to ask him or say anything. She goes on. Linda came at me and the gun went off over and across the bed, and the physical evidence proves that. And I didn't think of anything. I wasn't thinking. Back to Commissioner Doyle. But the physical evidence doesn't show that. The evidence will show a different thing happened here. My question is, you wrote a suicide note? How come you didn't commit suicide? How come you didn't do it after you killed your husband? Betty interrupts. I was going to do it. I didn't have any bullets. I didn't have any bullets left. I was just startled. I don't even remember pulling the trigger. But Doyle went on. She lunged at you? Excuse me? You weren't supposed to be there, and you're there with a gun. 
so there was some intent to go there and do something more than just chit-chat. Here is what the four Broderick kids said. The elder daughter, quote, I just always hoped that one day she would come around and realize what she's done. Yet she still not once until today has taken responsibility for her actions or expressed any remorse for the damage she caused. The truth of the matter is our parents had a horrible divorce and they treated each other very poorly. But that often happens at the dissolution of a marriage. Nothing that transpired between them is grounds for murder or frankly any of the violent actions my mother took toward my father and Linda in the years prior to their deaths. I wish more than anything this all never happened. My mom could have been the mother, grandmother, woman, and person that she had the potential to be. The younger daughter. I have come here today in support of our mother's release. I'm not trying to deny the heartbreaking loss my family has suffered through my mother's crimes. I love my father, and I want to honor his memory. My life has been very difficult trying to get by with this tragedy and the lack of my parents. My mother's been a good prisoner for the last 20 years, as all of her prison records will show. She has expressed remorse, and I feel that she should have a chance to live her older years outside of the prison walls. The Broderick's elder son. It saddens me to say this, but I don't think my mother is a stable and healthy person. I don't think she has been for decades. I don't think she's remorseful or insightful into what she's done. She has never expressed wanting forgiveness from us nor giving forgiveness to my dad and Linda. She has never apologized until today for what she's done. She has never acknowledged the pain and suffering. The Broderick's youngest child went last. As he spoke, Betty cried into a large handkerchief. I, too, support my mother's release. I've spent two-thirds of my life without my parents. I was very young when my mom was a broken woman. She was consumed by anger and grief, and she was so depressed and just not the woman that she is today. I'm very confident that my mom would succeed outside of prison. I think she would be a very contributing member of society, and I think that the longer she stays in prison, the harder that transition would be. I'm ready to move on and forgive. The parole commissioners heard, too, from Dan's brother, Larry. He had become Betty's fiercest adversary, and he spoke of the lost last 20 years. Quote, I have become a bitter, angry person over the years, and in order to more fully understand what I am about to say, it is important, I believe, for you to know that I believe that the criminal sitting before you is a psychopath. I am enraged that the self-centered, lying psychopath executed Dan and Linda. On her own behalf, at the 2010 parole hearing, Betty said, quote, I have great remorse and feel terrible for all the needless, senseless pain and suffering I've caused so many. I took the lives of two wonderful people who were loved by many. For that, I will be forever sorry. That was never my intention. If staying in prison longer would change something or bring them back, I would do that. But that would accomplish nothing. The board was not swayed. Commissioner Doyle said, quote, Your heart is still bitter. You're still angry. You are showing no significant progress. More overwhelmingly than just us talking about it was your own kids, who you talk to all the time, that they're saying, Mom, you've got to move on. You're still there. You're still back 20 years ago. All I can say is I wish you the best of luck. I hope 
I hope that you take some of the things that were said here today to heart, okay? Because you've got a lot of work to do. You've got a lot of work to do. At this 2010 parole hearing, and again at the one in 2017, Deputy DA Richard Sachs carried the ball for his office and reached the same conclusions each time, that Betty was, quote, totally not remorseful, didn't even try, and that she has zero insight into the killings. At the 2017 parole hearing, it took about two hours to hear from the 18 people who spoke. Again, the board turned Betty down and set the longest possible time until another parole hearing, 15 years. Short of some health or compassion consideration, she won't even be able to apply for parole again until she's 85 in 2032. A few things happened that gave inmate Betty the opportunity to say, I told you so, even though they had no legal impact on her murder case. Remember the no-fault divorce laws? In spite of them, many states still allowed the husband to exercise the legal right to manage community property by himself. That held true until 1981, when the U.S. Supreme Court found that antiquated lord and master practice to be unconstitutional. But in the Broderick family, it had still been Dan who made the big financial decisions. And during the divorce trial, and again during the murder trials, Betty wondered aloud what Dan was doing with the couple's marital assets before they split. Before Dan died, he and his brother Larry had partnered in several real estate deals. In the early 90s, as Betty was settling into her life in prison, an article in a California legal magazine took note of these deals. The April 1994 issue of California Lawyer called them, quote, disastrous investments and said that in the divorce divvy, quote, Betty paid for half of those losses out of her final settlement, a settlement Betty appealed, because she, quote, had no knowledge of these properties except what Dan chose to tell her. The magazine also reported that Dan had withdrawn money and transferred funds to his brother without initially disclosing the transactions to the divorce court. Betty also felt vindicated when, in 1993, Union Bank of San Diego sued Larry, who was also Dan's executor, for not paying back $300,000 of a loan now owed to the dead man's minor sons. Betty's trial attorney, Jack Early, said the lawsuit showed that Betty hadn't just been imagining that Dan was trying to, quote, make it appear Dan had less money. The second thing that would have given Betty heart A few years after her conviction, California's laws about battered women's syndrome began changing. Over the next dozen years, courtroom rules began requiring judges to allow testimony about battered women's syndrome for women accused of assaulting or killing their abusers. Then, women could use it as a defense and ask for a new trial if expert testimony had been kept out of their original trials. Perhaps encouraged by these changes, in 1998, from prison, Betty asked California's governor to set her free, saying she was a victim of battered women's syndrome and had been driven to kill in the heat of passion. It didn't work. It's not likely that Betty's breaking and entering double murders of a former husband and his new wife would have qualified her for consideration even under the new rules of evidence. The third thing that made Betty exult happened in 1996 when two former San Diego judges and a one-time Lawyer of the Year were convicted in a federal gifts-for-favor scandal that pulled back the curtain on what the L.A. Times called an old-boy network of unusual coziness among some lawyers and judges. 
tens of thousands of dollars in gifts like vacations, cars, and club memberships. Nothing surfaced in the case against these men that connected them with Dan Broderick's work, so why would any of this matter to Betty? Because of Michael Greer, a third judge involved in the scandal who became a witness for prosecutors and was sentenced to probation. Greer was the judge who, a month after the Broderick murders, turned down the news media's request to open up nine sealed files in the Broderick divorce trial. Like the divorce court judge, Greer said he feared it would harm the Broderick's children. In Betty's mind, her case was inextricable from the whole San Diego legal system, and anything that discredited it must therefore enhance her story. And hadn't she been saying those very words, old boy network, all along? In April of this year, Betty sent me an email from prison. Her own murder case, she wrote, is, quote, about abuse of power in the sealed, secret, crooked courts of San Diego in the 1980s. The presiding judge of the superior courts, Greer, pled guilty to doing exactly what I said he was doing during both my trials. That's why I was in a desperate state of mind and belief that I had nowhere to turn for help. This was pre-Me Too, when nobody listened when women tried to tell on rich, powerful men. Don't listen to her, she's crazy. Right. I was just too smart and too outspoken. Tisk tisk. Over Betty's first decades inside prison walls, the 90s, the aughts, the culture outside those walls was changing. The nation had its first woman attorney general and woman secretary of state, both appointed by Hillary Rodham Clinton's husband, who also signed the Violence Against Women Act, which gave a helping hand to victims of gender-driven crimes like domestic violence. In the 1990s, in popular culture, women outlaws and outliers were kicking ass. Amy Wallace was for a time the Los Angeles Times' lead writer on the Broderick case. In 2009, she wrote for Los Angeles Magazine that Betty had become, quote, a new kind of anti-heroine. Not only has the post-Betty era been richer in female payback, but unwittingly, in ways none of us could have imagined, she has helped change the rules of retribution. The 1991 movie Thelma and Louise made the cover of Time magazine headlined Why Thelma and Louise Strikes a Nerve. Film reviewer Roger Ebert likened it to a women's version of counterculture buddy movies like Easy Rider and Butch Cassidy and The Sundance Kid. In 1996, the First Wives Club had women cheering its Hollywood version of empowerment. Yet Warren Farrell, the second-wave feminist author who's now regarded as a founder of the men's movement, wrote that the First Wives Club might as well be entitled the Betty Broderick Club, and he didn't find the idea amusing. No new legal precedent came out of the Broderick case. Authentic feminism wants nothing to do with convicted murderer Betty Broderick as a champion of women. But all you have to do to start an online tussle is to toss Dan and Betty Broderick's names onto a computer screen. Their story is like the Daily Horoscope. You can always find in it something that you're already looking for and give the story a second and third life. There are Betty bashers, but they tend to be outnumbered by Betty boosters, like this woman, who didn't want to be named, but who sent us a voice memo advocating for Betty's release. I really think that 30 years is a long time. I think it was the perfect storm, this case of circumstances. I think by all accounts, Betty was a normal 
all-American wife, mother. She was living the American dream. I think, especially in her generation, you know, all she really aspired to be was a wife and a mom. And I think she took a lot of pride in that. And I think what happened between her and Dan and the erosion of that family and that dream really brought her to the brink. Um, no one deserves to be murdered. No one. However, I, I think this tragedy was exacerbated by Dan's prominence and wealth and character assassinations and the fact that he was cheating on her and gaslighting her to make her feel crazy. Some fans of Betty's feel abandoned in their own marriages and fleeced by the courts. And their reasoning goes like this. There's never an excuse for murder, but there's no justification for legal power tripping in a divorce either. Scroll through online sites and you'll find such voices as Sherry's from Florida. Quote, anyone who went through what Betty did to help him build his career and then be replaced with a younger version of themselves would snap too. Over at the far less trafficked Facebook page for Dan and Linda, Kirsten believes that Betty, quote, will not accept any accountability for murdering two people and taking away her children's father forever. That's why she wasn't given parole. If she wasn't going to have Dan, then no one was. If a man doesn't want you anymore, keep your pride and walk away. Where are the principles in this drama now? The judge in the murder trials, Thomas Whelan, was appointed to the federal bench by President Bill Clinton and presided over the campaign finance case of disgraced former Congressman Duncan Hunter. Carrie Wells became a Superior Court judge, a post from which she's now retired, and she never allowed TV cameras in any of her trials, only at the sentencing. Divorce and defense attorneys Daniel Jaffe and Jack Early are still practicing. Of the four Broderick children, the living victims in this, at least two are married, and there are at least two grandchildren. They visited Betty in prison. In prison, Betty is said to have gold star grade conduct. Betty has a college degree. As few as one prison inmate in 10 has that distinction, and she's helped other inmates earn their GED degrees. For a while, she was helping to handle the running of the prison's mental health office, where inmates get counseling and therapy. And this gets you to wondering whether, so long ago, Betty's charm of manner and nimbleness of expression helped her talk her way out of serious therapy and thus cheated herself of a chance to direct herself away from tragedy. Back then, the friends and family who knew her as the witty and thoughtful Betty were aghast at the emotional shambles in her head. McAllister, the jury foreman in the second trial, said afterward that all the jurors realized that Betty didn't perceive the world the way a normal person would. She continues to not be remorseful and contemplative about what she did. She still thinks of it in terms of herself and not what happened to Dan and Linda. And particularly with Linda, I don't think Betty even gives Linda any sort of thought. It's, it's all about Dan and herself primarily. And again, she's not remorseful. A cousin who visited Betty in jail shortly after the murders told journalist Bella Stumbo she couldn't believe how different Betty had become. Quote, she's manic. Why isn't someone helping her? You wouldn't expect much news out of one prison inmate among thousands, even when it's Betty Broderick, who isn't up for parole again for another 12 years. 
But whoever built the Facebook page for Betty's friends and supporters put at its top a silhouette image of a birdcage with its door open and a bird flying the coop. Two men are working to make that happen for Betty. One of them is her old defense attorney, Jack Early. The coronavirus has spread in California's prisons. At the women's prison where Betty is confined, more than 100 inmates and staff have tested positive. Early said he's looking into whether he can get the 72-year-old Betty released because of the virus, which is a particular danger to elderly patients with health problems. The other is an Oregon man named Eric Cope. He's crafted an online petition to get Betty a compassionate release from Governor Gavin Newsom. Cope is 42. He was 12 years old when he first heard Betty's story. It's a green age to hear such a black tale, but it snared his young attention because it was so different from the other true crime stories his mother liked to read. As I got older, and of course I saw the movie and I looked at the documentaries and interviews and all of that, I just really had a lot of empathy for her. Um, There's a lot more to the woman than just this case and what happened between her ex-husband and his wife. As for freeing Betty from prison, Cope says... She's 72 years of age. She does have some health issues, and she has served longer than a lot of other people. She was convicted of second-degree murder. Um, There are people that have been uh, convicted of first-degree murder, and even ones that have been given life without parole that have already since been released. And at this point... I just believe that she needs to be out. Betty had surgery a few years ago, Cope told me, and she took some time to recover. Now she's on the prison's disabled list, he says. She can no longer work, and her health is fragile. I've just gotten to know a really wonderful lady. She's very funny. She's very warm, uh, caring. She did make a very horrible mistake at one time, but she has paid for that mistake. She is remorseful for it. The bottom line is she's not a threat to society, and I believe at this time in her age and with her health conditions that it's time for her to be released, and California's held on to her long enough. As Betty's later life has been one confined to a prison, so was her earlier life to one obsessive, all-consuming topic. Dan, if only she could have followed the advice printed on the cocktail napkins that Bella Stumbo found among Betty's voluminous files. They read, it's better to divorce than to murder. But as all roads once led to Rome, all Betty's life led to Daniel T. Broderick III. Betty's now been in prison for about twice as long for killing Dan as she spent married to him. Perhaps the most powerful thing she could do for herself would be to just block Dan out of her future the way he wanted to block her out of his. But in her mind, Dan as betrayer and persecutor and manipulator incarnate became the force and engine that propelled her. With the new cable TV series about the Broderick murders, reporters have been trying to get in touch with Betty. Through her Facebook ally Eric Cope, she posted this. I do not want to be reminded or relive any of those painful moments. I have moved past that time in my life, the hurt and impact it caused on my children. I just want to move forward. The official name for California's prison system is the Department of Corrections and Rehabilitation. Has Betty been corrected and rehabilitated of her certainty that her victims drove her to a double murder? Sometimes she says she wants to move forward, Other times, she still blames the old boys' club and her own desperate state of mind. But you get the strangest feeling 
that if Betty were to let go of that indignation that's propelled her for so long, if all of that were just to vanish from the landscape of her mind, if the desperation to be Mrs. Somebody fell away, what would be left of that Catholic schoolgirl, that prim and proper daughter, that eager-to-please mother? What would there be left that makes Betty, Betty? Betty Broderick Murders is written and reported by me, Pat Morrison. It's produced by the Los Angeles Times with support from LA Times Studios and Spoke Media. Our producers are Paige Heimson, Jenna Hannum, and Carson McCain. Our audio engineer is Will Short, and our editor is Steve Clow. We got production help from Kelly Kolf and Alicia Force. Our original music is composed by Will Short from Spoke Media. Our theme song is Better Be Watching by Haley Lynn and Kyle Devine, and our additional music came from Firstcom. Our sources for this podcast include Bella Stumbo's Until the Twelfth of Never, the LA Times, the San Diego Reader, and the San Diego Union Tribune. Special thanks to Julia Turner, Shelby Grad, Clint Schaff, Jeff Glasser, and to Tegna Media, Next Star Broadcasting Inc., Harpo Inc., and CNN, which granted us access to their archives. It Was Simple is executive produced by Abby Fentress-Swanson for the LA Times, Keith Reynolds, and Aaliyah Tavakolian for Spoke Media. <laughs>